Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 9th and 10th of July 2022. In this session, Grant Major delves into his involvement as a production designer on The Power of the Dog. From first reading the script to the painstaking work in bringing the physical settings to life and shepherding them through the filming process. He talks about how story and authenticity were the paramount drivers in the day-to-day decisions and the collaborations he had with a brilliant, creative team of people in the world-building process for this highly successful film. This session is presented by Department of Post. Hello, everyone. First thing, I'd like to quickly say hi to all my friends in the audience and my colleagues, professional colleagues. G'day, everyone. And in particular, the screen producers and writers and the whole culture of why we're here today. You know, I think it's an awesome thing to be involved with. I've been in the business now for well over 45 years and I've just seen it sort of grow and mature and, you know, like there's been so many wonderful instances in my life. It's been my life, really, this profession, so it's been awesome. I guess, um, how was I going to start? I've sort of forgotten everything <laughs> already. Uh, so, it's the power of the dog. It's uh, like a, um, here to talk about one of the many, many, many shows I've done, but this has been one of the sort of highlights of my life, really. It was a, it was a, it's a show that had stardust sprinkled over it from the word go. I think from the time when Libby Sharp from Seesaw Pictures got hold of me in late 2008. I just finished Mulan at that point. And uh, she said, oh, you're interested in reading Jane Campion's script and maybe having a talk with her about her new project. And I said, yep, absolutely. Don't have to ask me again. Um, but that wasn't necessarily the job offer, you know. So I did meet up with Jane, uh, who came to my house in early 2019, and was sort of interviewing me for the job, which is sort of casting me in a way, you know, everybody. You know, she cast not just the, um, the cast, but uh, all of the main sort of creative people. She's very, very particular about the people that she has around her, close in this sort of collaborative journey that we take to make these things. And um, I'll be talking about Jane a lot during this, for obvious reasons. So, you know, she she had given me her script to read. Grant, what do you think of the story? What do you think of the characters? What's your creative process? She wasn't wanting answers, really, as much as what, who am I? You know, we'd worked together 30 years previously to, to this um, on An Angel at My Table. And, uh, you know, she was such a sort of personality. She's such a, a big sort of creative voice and I had huge amount of respect for her all over those years, but it had been 30 years, you know, it's been a long time to um, be away. And so it's, it's almost like a 30-year, a um, you know, in astrological terms, we sort of, every 30 years we sort of go back over the things we were doing 30 years previously. And so it was actually a very kind of stark reminder of that. She hadn't changed very much, and I don't think I had as well, except that I'd sort of done, you know, quite a lot of shows in between. Hopefully become a little more sort of au fait with how to production design because the um, An Angel at My Table was my first production design job. You know, it was my first time I had that whole sort of responsibility and it was uh, very vivid in my memory banks. So, you know, Jane was talking to me about story. You know, what do you think of the story and the script? which to me came fully formed. You know, it was, it was not a work in progress. She'd obviously spent a long time getting this thing uh, onto the pages of the, you know, the script. It really didn't change very much. You know, the, the story, the whole sort of um, structure of it and the, I'd say like 99% of the dialogue didn't change. She had it in her head, what she wanted to do. But she did remind me that the story and, the, you know, via the words on the page, is like the upper level of what we're making here. The um, story that the actors are going to be sort of bringing to life is the, the surface. And we go to the movies to experience something below the words on the page, in a way, the sort of psychological connections that, that characters have, you know, like... And, and also the building of characters themselves. And I think... 
I think I'm wrong in saying that, like, the more successful films are the ones that, to me, are the ones that we're talking about the next day and we'd, we're talking about again in the next week and the next month. Oh, do you remember that film and do you remember that instance and do you remember that character and, and things like that? And, and it's those sort of deeper things that I think had a very strong part to play in The Power of the Dog. It's a very quiet film in many ways. It's a sort of a slow burner. A lot of this sort of journey, the, the story was unsaid, you know, it was the, the, this um, sort of below-the-radar kind of experiences. By the time she talked to me, she'd already assembled a sort of a lookbook. Um, these aren't specifically from the lookbook per se. They're ones that I sort of used, because I like to go through the same process myself, of bringing images together, sort of searching for images that have sort of resonance and authenticity. And that's something that Jane... Uh, was very clear on from the word go, you know, it's it's got to be real, this has got to be real, and it's got to be, you know, like we're there. We've got to be in Montana in 1927 and not sort of like a cliché version of that. With all of its, uh, the Cattle Ranch, of course, is a very physical, dirty, smelly place where men interact <laughs> with with animals, you know, they, they castrate them, they... They um, make sure they breed and there's this very earthy kind of uh, whole physical sort of process to it. The the story, the original script actually um, had the castration scene, the very first thing we see. (laughs) It was actually put back a little later, but, you know, these very, very potent images, the hands and the the rope, you know, this rope that has a a thematic uh, journey all the way, all the way through the film, so... There's also a time, the 1920s, was interesting because it's like, you know, the West, the Wild West, um, is something that had happened over the last 200 years or 150 years in America. It's a long, it's a long thing. You can't just say, you know, this is a Western. It's, this is, a, a, this is um, something that's based in the West that happens at the, in a way, the tail end of, of the classic sort of Western time. And at that point... You know, Hollywood had made inroads. You know, Hollywood was a very, very big sort of institution then, and it had glamorized a lot of, a lot of the Wild West, and and, and it, you know, sort of produced a sort of a cultural thing like dude ranches and things like that, where you dress up. City people would dress up as cowboys, and they'd go and, um, you know, sort of uh, hang out on a farm and <laughs> on a ranch, and you sort of be a weekend cowboy, you could say. Jane was clear that it was not going to be that, but it does have pieces of that that come into the culture of our film. You know, the the cowboys do um, get mail-order guitars and fancy shirts and things like that. And, and of course, this is totally eschewed by Phil Burbank. Phil, the main force of nature through the, through the movie, um, is a man's man. He's also... He doesn't want any of this sort of namby-pamby city-type you know, fancy ideas. He's obviously keeping a lid on his um, fury over his own past and his own sort of sexual, um, you know, sort of bent, you could say. So, you know, it's very interesting um, sort of being open to all these sort of the the diversity and the richness of that of that sort of world that we are looking into here. Jane and I particularly like this one here, the male gaze, you know, there's, there's this sort of silent, piercing, laser-like um, connection that Phil makes to people in much the same way that Jane makes to all of us, actually. You know, she's a, she's a micromanager. She, she had that look on her face sometimes when I was talking with her. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, this is a completely different context, of course, you know. Um, but also, I put this one here on the bottom right because it's a little bit of what George is. You know, George is the quiet, sort of the the less um, accomplished and the sort of, you know, to put it politely, sort of the dumber of the two. You know, there's this very interesting sort of dynamic between the two characters that I was, um, you know, having to bring to life through all these sort of more subtle ways of... of um, using the production design. Um, You know, we used Andrew Wyeth, of course, and a lot of other... um, We looked at a lot of art, you know. um, uh, Oh, there's such a lot of influences on this. I I won't sort of bore you with that too much. But one of the main ones is um, Evelyn Cameron. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she was an English lady who'd gone with her family to Montana uh, around the turn of the century, around 1900, and bought a camera, and she documented her life 
on the prairies and this very, very strong aesthetic thing that came out of us that you'll see a lot of in, in Power of the Dog. It's this reductionist aesthetic. Um, you know, you can see that power of that house on that open landscape with that big uh, horizon line and the way that the house is just sort of plonked on the landscape, we stole that idea, man. You know, we, we really did use that. But also the sort of quirkiness. And Jane's got this wonderful um, way of, of bringing out these little original little moments of life, I guess, you know, with the actors and the way that they pose or the, what they hold in their hands or, you know, like the, the, the hula hoop moment and all these sorts of things are very beautiful little character pieces that break out of the sort of expected sort of storytelling in this. So we jumped in a car pretty quickly and we went down to the central South Island, which is really the only place in New Zealand that could offer up these sorts of landscapes. And boy, oh boy, did it what? You know, there was just, you'll know, one of the most fantastic things about this country is our virgin landscapes. And, um, you know, they're being eroded all the time. But this one here in the Ida Valley is, um, had to be in the film. So... It was a journey looking for locations ostensibly, but it was also more of this Jane and Ari Wagner, the DOP, and a small group of us in a car getting to know each other, you know. And so a lot of our um, early times were spent talking about the creative process again, you know, like, Grant, what's your sexuality? A, <laughs> you know, I don't... I don't get asked that question um, very often, in fact, never. And, and, um, but, you know, obviously it's a very important thing. And it's to do with, for Jane, it's, it's like a workshopping. She's workshopping us to be able to get these things out in the open and, you know, to give ideas for her as she um, will be, you know, sort of bringing to life in the film. And I guess you'll be asking the same thing of the actors. So, you know, we were being workshopped in that, in that journey. We uh, found the location we ended up using fairly quickly was in the upper reaches of the Ida Valley, the sort of northern end of it, with the lovely Hawkton Range at the the northern end of it. It was owned by the McKnight family, who are cattle and um, sheep farmers. Formerly they'd owned all that mountain range back there, but the Department of Conservation had come with a trade-off and and they'd they'd sort of extended the lowland farm for them as um, a trade for turning that back into a wilderness area. Good on them for that. The McKnights were not just the owners of the, of the uh, landscape, but they also really got stuck into the film as well. They, Being a cattle ranch, they wouldn't allow any other cattle being brought onto the property. So they did the a lot of the cattle herding for us and uh, just generally gave us a good time. You know, they were a genuine Kiwis. You know, I just love them. I love the... Um, those people out there. The, um, the place itself was a, um, one of the windiest valleys in the country. <laughs> it was, uh, the wind just kind of flies over the Southern Alps. The, uh, the great dividing range, they say, is just around to the left-hand side of that, sweeps down that valley, bringing all the weather with it. But it also brings the most extraordinary sky, like skies and cloud forms and things like that, the sort of low... Sun of the southern of the you know South Island, um, you can see it in the film. You know we really really were there for the light as much as for the landscape. And then we drove away. You know Jane, Jane is typical of Jane. You know she she um, she doesn't take the most obvious uh, solution first off. So she said, okay, what other locations have we got? So um, we drove around more and I. In this instance, we went to what I suggested, the, the Braemar Road, which is um, in between Lake Pukaki and Lake Tekapo. And she was looking for an alternative. So she could bounce these things around, workshop this process about, about the location. That it was not available to us didn't concern her at all. <laughs> yeah, it was going to be available. If, if I want it, I'm going to get it. You know, But as it turned out, it was the army land and it was a live firing range. And... Um, we heard nothing back from the army or the government or anything like that. Okay, we'll go to the prime minister. You know, we'll we'll uh, we'll make it happen. And I must say, every now and again, that strategy does work. It certainly worked for us on Lord of the Rings. But then, um, you know, I think the reality sort of hit home that this place probably wasn't not quite as good as as the um, the McKnight properly. 
property. So um, we definitely made the right choice there. Then the production said, okay, go and find a house. Go and find a house and we'll shoot there and, you know, you can use the McKnight property. Well, you know, you've, you would have seen the film, I would expect, and seen the huge role that the house had to play. There was nothing in New Zealand, I knew from the word go, that was going to suit us. So it, it became incumbent on us to... Um, promote the idea of building a place, which is a huge commitment to a film. I think it was around $30 million the, the, the project was um, budgeted for. You know, building a place like that will cost $30 million these days probably. But, you know, I was, I was um, tasked with um, trying to find the a, a sort of a precedent in a way that we could use for the for the house so the burbank ranch the burbank family i should say is a um the wealthiest family in montana the family that um came out there originally the the old man and the old lady as is referred to in the script um the parents of george and, and phil um, came out in the 1880s um from the eastern states they um bought their East Coast aesthetic with them. They were going to be gentlemen farmers. They're going to be the cultured centre of the uh, of the uh, community. They were going to host great parties, have scintillating conversation with all the other farmers and things like that. And um, that didn't happen, man. It did not happen. When you, it's a fantastic book, by the way. Um, try and read it if you are into the film, because Thomas Savage is just fantastic writer and it sort of fleshes out in a way a lot of things that are not um, covered in the film. Anyway, I mean, I did show these, these uh, so many houses to Jane and no, 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 don't like that. Too fancy. They only ended up being too fancy. Like this Queen Anne style that was sort of typical of the time was, um, was too feminine in a way, you know, um, too detailed. Until we found this place here and we, I showed it to her and we both had this sort of light bulb moment. This is big, you know, sort of big boned and sprawling, but it's actually not, it's a male looking house. It's like, it's got a gender to it. So we took that as a sort of a starting point and um, stripped the, uh, the verandas off and changed a lot of the things about it to conform to what I wanted it to be. But interestingly, it's... Um, it still has a sort of certain amount of style to it. You know, it's a it's a early. I'd call it like an early arts and crafts style. The arts and crafts style had a sort of a slightly orientalist and slightly prairie-ish kind of like um, come together of, of various different different um, uh, influences and things like that. Um, I didn't get it modelled up pretty quickly and plonked it on the landscape. Kind of let's have a look and see how this looks. These are very early, and so it did change. You know, the layout of the house and the the rotation of the house and things like that did, did change, but it's like um, we tried to get a feel for the place. Very interesting tool, um, Photoshop, actually. I really, I really love it to give little glimpses of how life is going to be. But Jane did, you know, she got, got enthusiastic about this, you know, as a result of these uh, pictures by Liam Beck, an a, um, illustrator. Um, then it became, then, then it was, okay, that's the house. The layout of the house in terms of the location and all the other elements that make up the farm are uh, very important relationships because they, they, they tie the story together. Like, um, I'd say like 80% 80 of the movie happens in this particular sort of environment with the house and the, and the um, cattle yards and all that sort of stuff. There were some existing cattle yards on the, on the um, farm, but we ended up bowling them because they were sheep ones and remaking them as cattle yards themselves. And the the um, other outbuildings and things like that. The um, house itself took about 16 weeks of build. There was a moment in time, um, going back to that, those slides you had of the snow and the wind and the rain and all that sort of stuff. Uh, first time that Jane came out and I, I escorted her out there was uh, just a particular day that nature threw everything it possibly could at us. And we were in this blizzard uh, with the house just as a skeletal sort of shape at that point. The builders, um, who were just absolutely fantastic um, southern guys, had wrapped themselves up like mummies, you know, like in, in sort of layers and layers of, of um, windproof things were up there and the wind sort of knocking this thing together. And Jane and I were clambering over this thing and she was almost in tears, actually, um, 
of just the thrill of it, A, but also the enormity of what we've taken on. And it's something that's pretty amazing about this industry, isn't it? You know, in a, in a sort of a non-gender way, you need balls of steel to, to do what we do. You know, it's, it's making something from nothing, making a creative um, enterprise from nothing, you know, notwithstanding there's money there to do it with. It's the, the risk that we take every day in these things is huge, you know, and this is part of it, you know, this is the sort of like the, the boots on the ground sort of manifestation, the actual wood and the timber and the concrete and the, all this sort of um, process is um, against the clock and against the sort of budget constraints and things like that. It's a ma massive journey, you know, it's a very emotional journey. So um, there was, uh, again, sort of going back in a way to these very important sight lines that we have. Um, it's not just the male gaze, it's the gaze, it's these sort of camera gazes, the camera connectiv connectivity with the house that had to be very importantly sort of thought through and recognised from the script and manifested. And so this is what we ended up with. The budget stopped at the top of the second, at the top of the second uh, uh, level. Uh, you wouldn't know it because uh, Jay Hawkins from Alt Effects did the most beautiful job in um, adding on the top. Jane was uh, like all all directors actually uh, very kind of shy about committing to visual, visual effects uh, more than they have to. Um, but this is one of those instances where you know we had to kind of stop somewhere. Actually, interestingly, Jane did warm to the visual effects thing, particularly during the post-production process, and I see she snuck a lot of things in there that, weren't, that we'd never talked about. Um, so she she got to like it in the end. But I've got to say, um, I'm very um, indebted to our builders, our craftspeople that made this thing happen in the way they did. In particular, Marjorie Marshall and her painting team, who treated this like a great um, watercolour project. There's layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of paint that went onto this thing, putting them on, washing it off, putting it on, washing it off, and me pestering them like a little terrier about, um, you know, trying to add all these other patinas onto this thing. So what we're looking at here is the outside shell. You know, obviously the... The interior sets were going to be built on the stage. Um, we did all of our exteriors with the outside of the house, by and large. We did um, do a lot of the joinery work in Auckland and sent it down to the um, Ida Valley, uh, but most of the other woodwork and most of the other materials were sourced locally. So, you know, it, um, just from our the, the last people who are occupying the stage here, you know, about the, the spend that happens... Um, in my instance, happens locally. And it happens to, you know, we spend it on builders, we spend it on hiring transport, and we spend it on um, beer at the local pub. We spend it on, you know, all these... It's a community thing, you know. So, you know, it's some... You have to kind of remember that, the, you know, the, the, the money gets, gets invested into these films is a, um, it's a, it's a... It's a sort of holistic kind of um, community spend for my department anyway. Yeah, having said we built the shell of the house, we also built inside the front door and we built inside the windows, you know, for obvious reasons, a sort of an overlap kind of uh, um, thing so that we were able to come and go from the house and come and go from the location to the Auckland studios um, with ease. So obviously that brings up a lot of scheduling things. Okay, what are we going to shoot where and what do we sort of shoot twice to overlap these things? And so then that segues into the interior house and this is an interior set and the stage. So this is um, sort of part two of our shooting process really. Um, this is done after we'd um, got everything in the can from down south. You all, all you guys work with designers before, I, I'm sure, and um, know about this, the sort of architectural and the, or in a way, the sort of theatre, theatrical um, process of doing interior sets. You know, the script that we read has a geography that's sort of burnt into the story. You know, people come in this door, they go up those stairs, they, they um, interact with each other across and through spaces. And so this um, original plan that I came up with for the layout of the house... Uh, didn't change much actually. This is um, it, it, it's um, a 
brewed this up kind of within, in the very early stages and we sort of stuck with it the whole time. So it did affect the, um, the architectural design of the outside of the house. There were about 25 pages of set designs that we did and um, hats off to the, the sort of craft within a craft of set design. I came, I was a set designer back in the early days and I just loved that whole, this whole architectural process. But it's not architecture, it's actually sort of facadism, if you like, you know. This is the beautiful thing of, of um, the ephemera of our, of our world, you know, these things that are sort of put so much effort and so much responsibility into bringing to the camera. And this is, uh, this is a very, this is sort of academic part of it in a way. So every last nut and bolt, every um, stick of wood that we used was um, called up and designed and... Um, assembled. You know, with the drafting process we use these days, we use a lot of 3D programs, and we're able to take these 3D models and then pre-visualise them into what the set's going to look like. And these are really, really valuable tools for Jane and for Ari, the DP, and in particular for the producers to see what their money's being spent on. Um, they're always asking me that, you know, why, you know, why is it so expensive? And I've got to say, actually, a little segue at this point. Actually, it's a good opportunity. Um, you know, there's films in this film. This is about a $30 million film, I understand. Um, I work on bigger films and I work on smaller films. And they all share the same thing about budget. You know, we never, we're always sort of pushing the upper limits of the budget. You know, why are this costing so much? In fact, there was, a, there was an interesting moment when um, I delivered the set in the South Island to Jane. And, um, like, we're all walk, walk, walking on air, really, because Jane just loved the place and she was, like, um, you know, um, so enthusiastic about it until the following day when we had a cost report came in and, and, and you know, like, there was, like, a change of expression, like, oh, it happened instantly. But it's... Um, you know, it's part of the journey and, you know, obviously we tailor what we can as much as we can to suit the budget, you know, so that's like a, a, a top-down thing. But from a bottom-up thing, I would say, you know, we've got to consider, we must consider resource. You know, this is a, if the art department, I'm talking about the art department, but it's the same with costume and and um, all the all these individual crafts, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna expect good things from us, you have to sort of respect what we do, and respecting what we do includes accounting for resources. And I'm talking about resource um, and money in many ways, but it's also time and it's expectations. You know, um, there's sort of a saying, isn't it? Like you can have it, you can have it for the right money, you can have it in the right time, or you can have it a good job done. You know, you can have two of those. Um, and uh, we do our best to um, do all three, you know, but it's, uh, it's not always, it doesn't always work that way. And, I, and I've worked on many projects that have fantastic scripts that describe these incredible worlds and all these instances and these action sequences and all that sort of stuff. And um, there's just not the resources to do it properly, you know, and it's... It's a thing that, that uh, we're confronted with all the time, but on different scales. Um, but I say that, it's a little trite saying it in a way, you know, we love the work we do so much that we sort of, you know, sort of do our very best to make it happen in whatever circumstances. In the throes of making the set, as it sort of comes together, the set decorating department sort of whistle in there as much as they can, usually after the builders have gone home, and put all the main main sort of chunks of furniture in there. And, uh, you know, they're as excited as I am in the work that they do and seeing how everything's going to fit. And they were very lucky to have sourced this gigantic moose head from Dunedin somewhere and um, couldn't wait to get the thing in there. It's just such a beautiful moment. I had to record it and show you. But, you know, this whole... Um, the, the, the sort of metaphor of that moose head, the metaphor of uh, this taxidermy and things like that were really, really important because, you know, this, again, you know, talking about story and the sort of below the line, below the dialogue kind of way that, that I help tell the story and the sort, of the, the, um, the sort of psychological dimension for things is through 
the choice of objects that go in here. And this is, you know, particularly, we're particularly lucky to be able to source all this um, taxidermy. You know, this it speaks of the violence of shooting animals for sport, uh, but also talks about the craft of Phil Burbank himself, who makes this taxidermy. And he's so he's got this sort of double-edged kind of thing going on of craftsmanship and um, brutal rural life, you know. Um, it's also, you'll see the house is very big boned, you know, try to keep the sort of, um, express the sort of broadness and the sort of largesse of American culture here. But it's also, um, you know, we, we try to remember that this is a, a sort of like a student flat at the same time. So the family instance, the instance in the script that um, brought us to the beginning of our story speaks of the, the eruption that happened in the family dynamic. You know, the, the mother and father have left the house around 1900 after an argument or a fight had happened in the family, which involved the fifth member of the cast, Bronco Henry and Phil. And had left the house to the boys. To That would have been about 20 when they inherited this house and the farm. And uh, Bronco Henry and George and Phil have continued on until Bronco's death about two years later. Since then, things have atrophied. The house has just has lost its kind of like familial love in a way. So it's there's a stasis here that I tried to sort of bring to the fore with all this sort of set decorating and the and the dressing. So it's sort of paired but you know paired back the sort of decorativeness of it and tried to keep get a sort of a functional overlay to this that um, expresses the sort of Phil George dynamic. Interestingly, Jane, you know, when we sort of opened the set uh, the day before, or a couple of days before, to to Jane and Ari to have to um, see it in its completed state, Jane would hang around. Man, she would hang around for about two hours, and we'd wander around, and then she'd sit down, and we'd start the reductive process. You know, we'd start pulling things out, pulling things out, and um, trying things in again, <laughs> and then pulling it out again, and. But it was, um, you can see the aesthetic of the film was, um, and the aesthetic of the storytelling in a way, was paring back all the things we didn't need and just kind of concentrating on the most important things. And I go back in a way to the Evelyn Cameron photographs of that empty, the empty landscape and the house on it, this very stark kind of thing, which is also has a stark, you know, it says something about the characters, when you put the characters on a stage, on an empty stage, it's got this sort of, you see their outline and you see their personality a lot more than a sort of a cluttered place. And that's kind of a similar sort of process that I was trying to get to with the um, set decoration here. There's also uh, a sort of a colour thing coming out. You'll notice that so far we've just got a sort of a light and a dark and an earth thing going on, a black, white dirt. That changes thematically when Rose enters the picture. When uh, Rose comes in, she brings in a little, she brings in obviously the feminine um, side of things. And, you know, her name Rose, you know, which is, you know, with this sort of colour context to it and the, the flower context to it. Another one of the themes that runs through our story, you know, this flower, the paper flowers, the, the, her name and things like that. Um, so you see there's just little touches of the, ro the rose colour coming in now. Um, but it's still very simplified and very dark, you know, the, with dark characters on dark backgrounds is what I, what I tried to do. And, you know, there's no accident in these sort of choices. Everything's workshopped. Everything is worked through, the, you know, lots and lots and lots of samples we did. And juxta you know, putting, assembling, you know, in this case, fabrics and wallpapers and things like this to sort of try and preempt what we're going to be spending a lot of our money on and a lot of time on. Um, so Jane was really involved in that as well. She just, you know, I just love her because she got involved in every step of the process, um, not just in the art department, of course, and costume and makeup and all that sort of thing as well, on a very kind of one-to-one -one basis with all the with all the people actually doing it. You know, she got to know everyone's names and the uh, and the set decorating department, all the soft furnishings people she got to know and, you know, and not just their names, but actually like on a friendship basis, you know. She's um, she really is awesome. This is just a quick glimpse at the um, hierarchy of the house as well. You know, it's again, it's kind of, uh, it's an easy thing to say, oh, we'll just build a big old mansion and, you know, put in what it looks like in the sort of reference pictures and things like that. But 
I'm an oldie now, and I've I really do have enjoyed over the years getting to know the sort of social thing about architecture and about houses and things like that. I do love going into people's houses and seeing the stories they tell about themselves. But I also very much like the hierarchy, the sort of gender hierarchy and the social hierarchy that you get in older houses. And we sort of take it for granted a little bit until, you've, until in my sense, we had to sort of manifest it physically. So, you know, the, um, the, the sort of back of house workers areas of the kitchen and things like that. I went to um, Alberton and have a look at their, had a look at their kitchen, the way that it worked um, and the way that where it was placed in the house and all that sort of stuff. And I just, you know, the set decorators and all that sort of stuff just did a beautiful job in making this functional place into an aesthetic place as well. There's some really key scenes that happened in here as well. The feminine side of our story and this very masculine house was really brought out in the um, in the kitchen scenes and in the bedroom scenes. See a little later on. We built this kitchen twice. We built it in the stages in Auckland, as well as on location. Uh, there was a version of it that we used um, for the sake of this room on the left here, which is the the cowboys' dining room. And uh, this is one of my favourite rooms, and it sort of sums up in a way the aesthetic of the film to me. It's a workers' place. And the it's sort of like the form follows function sort of idiom of everything being paired back and everything having a, a working role in the room. It's also, interestingly, the place where we see George, uh, Phil Burbank for the first time and for the last time as they, as they track past these windows. So it's really interesting working with Ari and um, sort of composing these frames within frames you know, the way that the, um, we sort of look, look out through windows and the way that that sort of focuses people's, people's attention to these specific little instances. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a um, symbiotic relationship that we have, Jane, Ari and I, in um, making all these things come together and the, and the collaborations that we do doesn't compromise the, the strong sort of auteur-driven film that this was, and it's great. <clears throat> I've worked with two of New Zealand's three uh, best auteurs, you know, Jane Campion and Peter Jackson, the two that I've worked directly with, and Taika Waititi, who uh, I haven't um, worked with in the role of a production designer. But I do so respect their ability to be able to be the driving creative force in the film, and, um, you know, it's Obviously, we have to park our egos. I have to park my ego in deference to um, this very strong personality-driven film that Jane Campion um, has made here because she's all over this. But she relies on us. She relies on Ari and myself to, to make it real and to um, also bring our own skills and our own sort of um, methods and experience to um, make these things happen. So it's really awesome being part of like a like the core sort of creative team here i'll segue for a moment upstairs so uh you know there was a whole different set we built upstairs and um and she did uh jane like most of all the sort of sketches that i do rather than the fully fleshed out <laughs> photoshop visuals that we did for it um but as well as this and something that um we didn't really ever show to jane but it was a uh, the, the, the set decorators also modelled up the rooms um, to make sure that all the key furniture pieces had a home. And it's out, again, it's the sort of thing that you don't sort of notice so much in the film, but um, so much work goes into composing the layout of these places and I must sort of pay tribute to the, the sort of professionalism of the, of the um, set decorators for uh, really, really thinking this, this through. Other than the kitchen, the one room that sort of breaks the masculine mould of the house was the bedroom. And this would have been left this way as a sanctuary for the mother, the old lady. Um, you could imagine having moved out to Montana in the 1880s and just to this kind, of, this kind of place in the middle of nowhere. This was made by her husband as a sort of a, a woman's room to um, sort of uh, yeah have, have as a female space. We never see mother and father in here, but we do see uh, Rose and George move into the space. In its own way, it's sort of not very settling either. You know, Jane and I sort of chose this very vivid wallpaper, a floral theme, 
rose colour, but it's like hardly settling. And inter interestingly, we made all these wallpapers. You know, we we made so much of the things here through um, all our um, wonderful craft skills. Uh, Amber Richards, the set decorator, had gone to uh, America and filled up one 40-foot container over three days to bring back. That was like what we could afford, what the time we had. It included the uh, bedroom furniture, thankfully, this um, very huge architectural-looking sort of Biedermeier style. But it wasn't complete. You know, it came inc incomplete and we ended up having to build parts of it to make it finished. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful journey to be on, I must say, bringing these places to life in the bathroom. Started off quite differently when I first showed it to Jane, and she said, "Nah, I don't like this." So <laughs> we um, ended up sort of workshopping it, you could say. And uh, you know, this is how it ended up. I think it's, it's quite nice in the end, the sort of light dark, light dark thing. And of course, the way it's placed that opens into the bedroom on one side and opens into Phil and George's bedroom on the other side. It was all functioning as well. You know, all the water had to work, and obviously the power had to work, and things like this. Coming now to the stables, which is, in a way, as important as the house. You know, again, it was all built from the ground up. This was Phil Burbank's kind of emotional centre as a building. If this is Phil Burbank, this is his happy place. Yeah, we, we uh, sourced all the timbers locally, cedar logs from down there. The guys built it in the wind and rain and sleet and hail and all that sort of stuff. It was an uh, interesting research project for me because uh, barns uh, differ in America from north to south and from east to west. And, um, of course, they would have, <clears throat> in the 1880s, they would have built it out of things that they could source locally. So we did just the same. We, we um, had a, a, a log architectural construction company, I suppose you'd say it, as build it structurally. You know, all these uh, sets had to be structurally legal, of course, you know, because we were in them as, um, you know, with humans in and around them. They had to be the real deal. In fact, this this uh, this stable could have lasted for three, four hundred years probably if we had left it, but it had to go afterwards for liability reasons. I put the bottom uh, one in, the bottom left one in, because it's another aspect to... Our presence on the landscape there is that the farmer had put a lot of lime on his paddocks and everything was green. It didn't fit in with our aesthetic and we had to knock back the grass <coughs> without killing it. So we used an organic desiccant, um, but it was a very nail-biting exercise. It could only happen kind of late in the piece so that the farmer could still keep farming for as long as possible for it to be uh, dead-looking or dry-looking in, in, in the actual filming process, and then the farmer wanted it back straight afterwards. So we had to knock back the grass leaves without killing the, um, the, the roots. I was very lucky to have Brian Massey, who was my greensman on Lord of the Rings, and um, he, was, uh, he was a champion and a lifesaver in that instance. Just talking more about the emotional heart of, of, uh, of the barn, Phil you know, as opposed to George. Phil is very articulate and educated and very sort of deft with his hands and things like that. You can see the little models that he makes for George, little models of, of furniture and things like that. But it's also where we sort of get to know Bronco Henry in a way. There's a shrine to Bronco, which is the emotional heart within the emotional heart, you could say. You know, he's always referred to, he's like the ghost in our story, and um, the closer we get to that saddle, the closer we get to the sort of heart of the story in a way. And I, you know, um, again, it's a beautiful way of storytelling in a way. This, so, you know, again, it goes back to this sort of so much being unsaid, but we know the story through the way that the actors interact with the props, you know. And there's again the moment when. Um, Phil ushers Peter into the barn against the pleadings of Rose, closes the door against Rose and sort of and sort of brings him into his embrace. It's also the the um, the moment just prior to, as things get very very intense with the weaving of this of this lariat and the it's like the lovemaking scene, lighting cigarettes, the touching of the arm and all that sort of stuff, all happens in that in that space. Um, jumping out of that for a moment, <laughs> dead cow. Um, 
my experience on Mulan uh, taught me that things are changing politically and rightly so with the way that we treat animals. And um, there's no way that we're going to be able to have a dead cow on set legally so and morally so. But, of course, here's a dead cow. And uh, so we went through a lot of money and time and effort to be able to taxidermy a um, dead cow, actually. You know, it was, but it was uh, all had to be done legally and it had to be seen to be done legally and we had to have the paperwork of it to be done legally for it to be able to have the certificate from the animal welfare people in Hollywood to be able to be able to market the film. So it's a, kind of a big thing now. I remember on Lord of the Rings where the, um, the first uh, costume designer had found and accumulated two six-foot containers full of bone, leather, fur and all sorts of animal parts um, for the costumes. And uh, when Disney found out about it, they said, no, we can't do that. And so <laughs> she said, um, you know, how on earth are we going to do this? We have to use fake fur now. We have to do fake bone and, and all that sort of stuff. But, of course, uh, we also had to make lariats out of actual leather and things like that. So it's, sort of, it's a very strange sort of uh, political thing, uh, road to tread now. Zach, up in the top left here, had to learn, he was a prop maker, but he had to learn how to make all the rawhide and things like that. It's something that we're not taught so much in schools in New Zealand. So, uh, you know, we had to learn all this, all this whole process. You know, we had to learn what anthrax does with um, cows and with animals, I should say, and how to manifest that. And we also had to um, flay the hide of a of a cattle. So, we, you know, Jane was very keen on this, following the process of, of flaying the skin, making the rawhide, weaving the lariat and tensioning the lariat and all these sorts of things as a sort of a metaphor, again, for the, for the um, weave of, this, of the story. So all these things sort of, um, you know, we had to sort of bring to life. Just one or two other uh, things on the farm, the um, cowboys' quarters, this is actually, interestingly, this is one of the things that was cut from the script for budget reasons, as well as a few other instances which we ended up bringing back because I, by then I was in love with Jane and I wouldn't deny her anything. And uh, um, she actually left me to go and um, hang out with the DP after that and then I hear that they, she went on to hang out with the editor after that. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I still love her nevertheless. Um, you know, these, again, the importance of these sort of sight lines and the relationships that these uh, buildings have with each other conjure up the spaces in between. The spaces in between all these elements are, are what frames the landscape and more often than not what frames the actors. So, you know, the, 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 the layout and the sort of modelling of, of these sort of relationships of things that they have to each other is um, very important. We're not lacking in fabulous props in this country and cars included... The owner of this car and his wife bought it in one of the middle states of America and drove it overland to California, making a huge following on the way and uh, brought it out here. And he was with the car every day we had it there, making sure that the thing was running. You know, it's just part of this wonderful culture that, that we have in films where, um, you know, it brings together people who don't often get to sort of strut their stuff, you know. I particularly remember that again from Lord of the Rings days where we had saddle makers and jewellers and glass blowers and calligraphers and all these um, trades and crafts that are sort of dying out in a way, but in this industry they get to sort of come together and just love what they do. <laughs> Moving on very quickly, I'm running short of time now, um, to uh, the town of Beach. Um, so we're outside of the bounds of the of the house now and where 80% of the drama happens. We sort of catch glimpses of the outside world and this is a little bit of the backstory of, of uh, Rose and Peter here. So we ended up making um, the Red Mill, which is the building on the left. Uh, in this picture, the other buildings were visual effects extensions. This is part of the plan. It wasn't so much part of Jane's sort of enthusiasm for it in the end, but, um, you know, it was just brought together beautifully and, you know, the the, um, the cattle were tiled in this instance to get the right sort of amount of of, um, of beasts in the main road. So this is our set piece we built for it. The restaurant on the ground floor, a sort of a boarding house on the top and the bar sort of connected to the side of it. Um, the bar originally in the, in the book was a separate building and alcoholism 
and drinking um, actually has a much larger part to play in the backstory of this, by the way. But uh, this is where Rose and Peter had been abandoned by her husband, who was a doctor, and um, through alcoholism, by the way. And uh, but it's a it's a like a it's like a town that. I would imagine these days in 2022 is a ghost town, like it's a road, it's like a town that's on the road to nowhere. So it was really, really nice to bring this sort of battered, windblown railhead to life. Uh, I pop this slide in here because I just want to pay tribute to the incredible work that Kirsty Cameron and Noriko Watanabe did on the characters in this film. So many of the slides I have are just like empty, <laughs> empty rooms. But this is, you know, very much a, it's an ensemble piece where we all sort of come together and um, put, putting the characters into these environments of what it's all about, you know. So they just did an incredible job. Uh, back to empty environments now. <laughs> um, you know, we are, again, you know, learning and understanding and bringing to life a poor person's kitchen you know, as opposed to the large kitchen in the Burbank Ranch was really, really good talking about their sort of their destitute um, life that uh, Rose and Peter had. And um, again, the uh, wonderful patinas that the, the painters and the builders were able to give us for the buildings, <clears throat> the upstairs and the downstairs. You'll remember that the inside of the Burbank Ranch was very, very dark, dark characters, dark things happened there. Inside of the Red Mill restaurant is, by contrast, you know, where all the music and dancing happens and the sort of the, the sort of genuine the feminine world, I guess, that, that um, is played out there. So it's, again, sort of lovely contrasting, but it's not a... It's, it's, it's bringing the sort of prior use of the um, buildings uh, out was something I really enjoyed doing. I wanted to make it feel like they were not the first owners of this place, um, that the bar might have been an engineering shop, the whole building might have been repurposed into what it is now. Um, so it gives sort of dimension and depth to the current occupiers of the place. You know, we ended up, again, making all of our own uh, wallpapers and um, putting so much work into the soft furnishings. Um, the patches within patches were, you know, it's all these things that we don't, the camera never really focuses on, but it helps to, when you catch glimpses of it, helps to sort of flesh out and adds more dimension to the the people and the circumstances um, in the drama. We did um, make it, make the uh, another sort of ghost in a way. Maybe he's a sixth person, you know, the, the husband of Rose, his um, final resting place here on the... All these, done, all these were done on the same farm, by the way, all different parts of the farm that were um, sort of post-produced to make it feel like they were in different parts. Oh, here's the bar. Here's the, the bar. I tried to um, stay away from cliches. You know, this is part of the thing I was, guess I was talking about at the very beginning with the dude ranches and the sort of Hollywoodization of things. We have a picture in our heads of what Western bars look like, and I really did want to stay away from that. So... I try to make it feel like it was just a cobbled together thing. And when you look at the re the reference of these old places, they are very much cobbled together, repurposed, um, cheap and cheerful sort of places where people go and have their whiskies and what have you. The slant was talked about quite a lot. Uh, I do get asked about it quite a lot. It was one of these character pieces that I was talking about with Jane, where how she brings in these sort of unexpected bits and pieces. One of the uh, reference pictures we had had a banner just like that with the combination on it. And I was going to put the combination on this sign, but uh, we couldn't get it passed through clearances because it was a commercial name for what was then a sort of a chain store of bar and um, general food kind of marketplace. So we thought, well, you know, it's too good not to use. So she came up with the word the slant and someone else put old major on the bottom of it. I don't know what they're trying to tell me, but um, it's kind of cute. I've still got it at home. Yeah. And again, you know, trying to break away from the sort of the, the typical um, um, bar room kind of thing and give it character, give it its own character. So having talked about the reduced palette, there's a there's we get now to you know this very vivid use of green where we go to a part of the farm where we again go to a very deep emotional place with um, both Peter and in particular with Phil. The uh, haymaking camp was um, you know a place where um, Phil and and um, Peter where, where Phil sees something in Peter that he wants. 
then Peter, in, his, in turn, sees something about Phil that he is sort of digging deeper, deeper, deeper into with his finding of the the um, what do you call it? Um, physical culture magazines that they that he stored away and um, art magazines with um, you know sort of a glimpse into the sort of sexual world of of uh, Phil. Uh, we used the um, Dunedin railway station. Um, thank God for. Omaru, you know, I've used it so many times, but this is one of the most successful kind of uses of it. It's just um, the whole part of the world, actually, like the lower east coast of New Zealand is just a, it's a fabulous treasure. And um, this is, uh, you know, where it's just a matter of pairing it back, and that's what it is. Put some dirt on the ground, and it sort of suited very well the colour palette and the, the, um, the, 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 the town of Herndon in this case. You know, we're sort of getting into these bigger and bigger places. So, um, and of course, the local council there were just like, boots and all, we're going to do this. We'll close off the street for you. We'll get our own guys to put the dirt on the ground. And, you know, it couldn't be better. Lastly, um, or nearly lastly, this is a, a little um, cob building we found in Matakanui, which is an old gold mining town, an old uh, general store, which the set decorators turned into a men's shop. Um, we could have shot the whole movie in there. It was so beautifully done. And, uh, you know, um, this kind of um, building, the sort of world of, of um, Herndon. Uh, coming back to our flowers, you know, I think I used every single white flower in Auckland for this and uh, and florist and, uh, you know, back in the Victorian times, it's, it's the sort of thing they used to do, these huge floral tributes to, to people. Uh, and this sort of is the final slide, really. This is the, um, again, brings us back to the flowers and it also brings us back to the psalm, the 20th, 20th? 20th psalm, uh, the power of the dog. I did ask Jane, you know, about the, you know, why the power of the dog? You know, what does that mean to her? And um, obviously there's the meaning within the Bible, I guess. Um, but also to her, it was the, the dog. What is the dog? We've got a dog in all of us. You know, we've got, we've got a, an animal and in a way it's a plant, a, a beast in all of us that we keep a lid on. And in particular, in our instance, Phil Burbank. But the lid comes off every now and again and um, this thing comes out. And it's that power. It's a very, very powerful urge in all of us. It's a sexual urge in this in this case, but it could be another. It could be a violent urge. It's and and the, the putting the lid back on that and the distortion that it, that it makes of our lives is was one of the sort of prime psychological underlying threads of the story. Anyway, so that's that. I think there might be some some um, questions now. Hello. <laughs> I, I, did any questions come in at all, or was it? Oh, good. Time okay. For, I reckon two questions. All right. Good. 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 Okay. Um, one of the questions, which was, um, what happened to the house? Can it be used for anything else? Or all the amazing spaces? It's like a new Hobbiton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Hobbiton. Actually, you might recall that Hobbiton was rebuilt as a sort of oh, a, uh, after the main after. My involvement in it. Anyway, um, no, the house had to go. It's, there's liability, A, there's liability in keeping a structure like that standing. It's not made out of uh, rated timbers. It's just made out of whatever timber we could it's afford. It's meant to last like a year yeah. and that's it. It's also the beautiful thing about the movies. You know, we, we move on. I'm going to move on. You know, like the, um, we built the house and we put so much love and demo devotion into it, but um, it's, it's now going to live on in the movie, you know, so. Are the materials know. recycled? Materials are recycled, yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for asking that. It was a, we do have responsibilities to the environment. A lot of it ended up being firewood, um, but a lot of it, <laughs> uh, a lot of it ended up, you know, a lot of the big timbers um, did, did get reused. And the Cowboys' quarters actually got put on the back of a trailer by the McKnight family and taken up to the top of a hill, and that's their party venue now. So, they, you know. <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, and then I think one more, which was, one of the questions was how to balance your anxieties or needs with the director, but I think you sort of talked about kind of having to shelve your ego in the face of their vision. But there's another one, I think, which is just a simple question. What was your production design budget out of that whole budget? What do you see from that? Well, I can't answer it uh, in, in part because um, one of the beautiful things about being a production designer is that I can employ a supervising art director who um, manages the crewing and the budget. So right. it leaves me to be the creative 
guy to swan around and, you know, <laughs> do what I do. But also um, uh, Mark Robbins, the, uh, the art director uh, I was referring to, and the wonderful national treasure of Chloe Smith, who is such a, a um, advocate for production design and for the art department and all the crafts, actually, um, managed to take the load off my shoulders for that. But the buck does stop with me, you know, and it was I was the one that was confronted um, with the uh, the horror of the um, the um, cost report that came in. But I, I'm pleased to say that COVID actually, in our case, was the um, came to our rescue in many ways. I think it was the force majeure of having to stop production in I think it was March 2020, and. Um, all that sort of the financial kind of ramifications on that, that may have injected a little bit of money back into us and sort of kept us afloat. So, mm. yeah. I mean, I, I think that probably, I shouldn't have said any of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's how it exists in my mind anyway. Yeah, no, We love to hear any positive stuff that comes out of COVID. Well, thank you so much. The Big Screen Symposium 2022 is brought to you by Script to Screen. We are grateful to our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, AUT, Images and Sound, and Te Mangai Paho. Voiceover is by me, Anna Corbett, and music by Poddington Bear. 